Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Science of Futures on the Isaac Arthur, live streaming this day on July 30th, 2023 and as always joined by my lovely co-host and wife, Sarah Fowler Arthur. So we'll go ahead and take right to your questions and as always please put them in as clear and concise a format as you can to get them in the chat so they can be laid on to be asked today. Uh, do we need to start off with? We do. We have a question from Albert Jackinson, who's a big fan of the show and a regular. He said, recently I read a chapter of Starry Messenger by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and in the chapter about exploration and discovery, Neil appeared to demonstrate with examples from 1870 until now in 30-year intervals, change in technology was always exponential due to how ideas are spread. This is different than the singularity, at least in the way I understand it. What do you think of this idea? Since, if I remember rightly, you have said in the past that singularity as an idea is too simplistic. I think that's well. I think that's probably not what he was going for there. He's saying that's a definite thing either. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the the idea there is we can cherry pick things very easily when it comes to technological progress. I'll give you an example. Something else that's grown in roughly 30 years intervals of the human population. Uh, in fact, in the last century, it doubled every 50 years. That's exponential growth. So if I'm just looking at something that seems to be a uh, exponentially growing thing in that time, wouldn't it seem like we'd expect to have an exponentially growing resource, you have an exponentially growing population because you have exponentially growing people. So if you suddenly stop having that, then that wouldn't be the case. But we actually had more than that, right? We went from a civilization at the beginning of last century where most people could not read even Western countries. And yet, over that century, we went to one in which going to college became almost routine. It was something that a very large percentage of the population did as opposed to a rarity, and a lot of it was STEM. And they could actually have careers in that. So we probably went from having maybe one in a thousand people working in science and engineering in some fashion to probably more, you know, probably a few percent at least. And that population went from being about one or two billion to being about six or seven by the end of the century. So why would it be the least bit surprising that we had an exponential growth in technology? And why would we assume that technology itself was what was making us exponentially grow faster? It, this is one of those things where we can get ourselves in trouble by basically engaging in numerology a lot of times with science. It's how you know thinking the asteroid belt must have been a destroyed uh, planet just because it works out in terms of distances. If we're very picky about how we choose to look at the number of intervals of planets in AU, um, I don't think there's any reason to think that we're having an exponential growth in technology because technology somehow exponentially grows itself. It's a feedback process of tons of different variables. I invent a better farming technique and now I've got twice as many people and I get more research done. Alternatively, I invent a better battery and that itself can be very handy, but doesn't result, that might be more of a technological jump. But doesn't result in a doubling of population, so there's not as big a technological increase, right? Which piece of technology has been rapidly improving, and how does that affect things? To to just kind of fit in that curve like that, it's either overly simplistic or it's a trivial assumption. Of course, technological projects have been going up the last century. We've had so many more people working on it, putting so much more funding into it, things like that. Uh, and at the same time, how do you actually measure technological progress? It's not a it's not a video game with a tree. You know, it's just like one step, two step, three step, four step. Um, we have long periods where it's been relatively slow, and now it's been faster in the last century or two. Will that continue? Don't know. Right? Uh, we have no way of knowing that's going to keep going on indefinitely. But we can't just assume that. A lot of processes in nature will show a curve that fits very well for good reasons, and then suddenly changes dynamically to another boundary condition. So I don't think that's terribly relevant. I, I, I see what he's going for there. I've seen it for other folks too, but I can't agree with the assumption that's going to keep coffee up. All right. It looks like we're getting quite a few uh, questions in the chat, so I'm going to try to keep uh, picking some of these ones that have a little quicker answer for a time. Uh, we have a question from Rob Hawk. He wants to know what the sci-fi novel that you mentioned previously about humans encountering intelligent aliens that were not sentient. Does that one ring a bell? Yeah, that would be Peter Watts' Blindside. Um, Blindsight, Peter Watts, I want to say 2010-ish, but it's in the last century. It was our first book of the month, actually, I think. Uh, although Asimov had a short story that was our first, first book of the month. Um, Peter Watts, Blindsight, great novel. 
All right, and we have a question from Clash. Does mercury have the potential to become a major exporter of raw materials? Transfer windows to the other planets are frequent, and it has no atmosphere, which makes shooting stuff into space easy. Oh, yeah. We had the episode Colonizing Mercury uh, some years back. It was the second iteration of us doing um, the Outward Bound series between the, the, you know, the big three, like Titan, Mars, and um, Venus. We uh, came back and did uh, Mercury, and I thought... What was fascinating about that was just seeing how much more options they really were to colonize the place than we tend to think. And I, I would say that in some ways it's one of the best colonization targets, but it's where we have to start saying, well, what exactly do we mean by colonization or settlement? Does it mean people really live there much, or is it more of an idea that, uh, you know, that's where we're really resource extracting from? And the potential is simply, as you say, the gravity's not that high. Um, you has no atmosphere on the way. There's a great power source to run something like an electromagnetic rail system, and, and there's no clouds. There's no quick nights, so you got a steady power supply the whole time. And so you can just file things off folly after folly into space, and it's got almost as much material in it as Mars does, and uh, that makes it like number five for reasonable export in the solar system. Awesome. So Thought Criminal says, what is your opinion of Eliezer Yudkowsky's claims that IA will almost certainly lead to human extinction. Do you agree with him? And what do you think are the odds of AI doom? No. Uh, and and uh, I have a lot of respect for what goes on there and at uh, Less Wrong uh, in terms of just kind of thought experiment stuff. You know, locals, baskets, etc. Very interesting as a basic thought experiment. But we, we really get in this trap with the singularity of, of just assuming inevitability of these things. What does it take to stop technological progress? You know, nothing. Literally, that's all you gotta do is do nothing. We spend huge amounts of effort to maintain technological progress. I regularly get involved in fundraising efforts to help out on science. I got another one could have seen to try to help out on New Horizons and some other projects like that. It takes huge effort to keep pushing science forward. Not just resources, but convincing people that want to pay money for it. Um, so if you want to stop AI progressing, all you have to do is say, we're done. Uh, but, no more money. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I think people just, they're all processes. We say, well, history is like a wheel. Now, a wheel is an artificial machine you make that moves from point A to point B in a circle and then stops when you want it to. History is not like that. It's not cyclical that way, not some kind of constant wheel around. Things change each time. And that wheel, again, goes from point A to point B and then stops. But. Do not assume history has some kind of inertia that forces things forward that we cannot stop. It's a social construct. Everything we do is what we want to be. If we choose to stop doing this research, it stops. Or as we tell the kids, you have choices and choices have consequences. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Mahan says, what key technology would make interstellar colonizing viable? Mm. Uh, AI. <laughs> Okay. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be human intelligent. And something in my book, because we just talked about Peter Watt's Blindsight novel, is a good reminder, and it's a big concern these days, is that in that novel, they're not human intelligent, but they're a huge threat. And it shows how intelligent they say all that important. The biggest thing with the AI that's changed the last decade is realizing that it doesn't have to be as smart as us to be extinction-level threat, beyond just a Grey Goose scenario. And so that's kind of the concern is we can definitely stop this stuff before it gets to the AI human level intelligence. It's trying to figure out where it's going to be dangerous at. And that's harder to say. Somewhere between the gray goo, people click maximize those Skynet scenarios, there's a danger zone and we need to stay clear of that. And I think that we can. But it's, it's one of the situations where automation AI is so useful for things like space colonization that they, you know, you, you almost, ha you don't have to use them, but you probably should. So... It's like everything else we do. It is it is walking a tightrope, and if you fall off, well, then you fall off. <laughs> that sounds painful. Let's yeah. try to stay on. Well, it might be quick and painless. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we have a super chat from Ivan Fessler. Thank you. How would we build roads on the moon, and what materials would we use? Oh, um, I would say there's a lot of different approaches you could take for that, but. Depending on where you're at, you might say, well, we're just going to scrape off regolith till we get to something less powdery beneath because you got a big dust layer there, uh, you know, till we get some um, layer of a melted something or other, uh, hard rock, whatever it happens to be. Or you might say, well, let's compact stuff up and above so that when dust is being pushed around by, there's no wind, but a little collision or something like that, so it's like a blow over top. 
Um, I would almost say from the outset that one of your smaller process for building roads on the moon would be to kind of do the raised platform compacted approach. But so much is going to depend on how easy we find it is to actually process these things and putting power in. One advantage you have with the moon is you do not have to have stuff on the ground. The gravity is so low there and there's so little wind to shake things that you can just do raised platforms the whole way. You could have a bridge running over top of all your cradles and problems that was this thick. Because you got metal plenty and it don't have to be that strong. And you just run over top of that. You just do railroads everywhere potentially. We won't know the answer to that until we actually all they all try to set up these landing pads and need practice doing that. But one of the most important bits of infrastructure we know of after Apollo that we need to put in there right from the get-go is those launch pads. You cannot land on that dart without a problem, that regolith. And so that's where we're gonna learn how we best build roads. But that would be why we do it. I think our next question or series of questions here from Wolf Killer Q probably would uh <laughs> make a great research project for somebody's school paper and maybe even a great entrepreneurial business opportunity. He wants to know how the future how the future of pizza will change in technology and automation and including how it's made, delivered and the potentially strange new types of pizza that may come about. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a business opportunity. It, it does. Well, I mean, this is an example. Uh, you might decide the easiest way to do this is with a drone that's got an oven in it. So the ingredients are all put in by the robot at the, I don't want to name brand somebody, at the pizza place, which we'll call Amino's. Uh, and uh, then they are stuffed into the drone pizza oven, and it uses the excess heat of running its engines to run that oven as it goes to the place it is going to deliver that pizza. Uh, that is a possibility, right? Uh, and it might run several pizzas at once and, and do that whole process. Uh, or it might be that we cook them in the you know cook them there and the drones take them away to you. Or you might still be using human delivery people for a while. What if so. you get them like cooked on site? I mean, wouldn't that be pretty awesome? Well, but do you want one to actually cook on? They site? could bring all the ingredients right to your door. Pick them up what you want on the way. <laughs> cook it on site. Prepare. Well, I was thinking one of the biggest differences of the next decade we're going to have to get used to. That's going to be that that big kind of change we have that generational change is that. Groceries are going to start getting delivered again very regularly. And I don't mean uh, as a you know minor novelty. It's not going to result in a in everyone getting the groceries delivered all the time. But I think what we're going to see is for that and a lot of other retail moving not necessarily away from the big box stores, but the idea that half your business is that in-site location shopping, and the other half your business is sending it to people at their individual houses who have ordered. And how people best master and, and put that together is probably going to be you know, the difference between who the next big Walmart or Amazon is and then who is the next um, Kmart or some other company that went out of business or went and dropped down in business because they didn't adapt as well. And so not hmm? too quiet. So, next question. Uh, Mr. ACP1911, thank you for your super chat. What is your thought on this UFO nonsense in Congress. Wouldn't the OCAM's razor say that it is most likely that whistleblowers are government agents who are pushing for more black projects dollars? Um, that's a possibility. You know, Occam's razor has a tendency to slice people into little bits and, and not as obviously as we would think. I don't really have to fall back on that too much for explanations of, of phenomena because if it were a phenomena, a lot of times, you know, Occam's razor is a, uh, subjective kind of thing. What's the simplest answer for that thing we saw in the sky? Well, a UFO actually is a really simple you know, answer for why. What's that weird thing moving around the sky? Um, so is the idea that it's a falling meteorite, for instance, um, or weather balloon. You know, there are thousands and thousands of weather balloons. It's the reason why we still have to go for that source. As the congressional hearings, I suspect that's going to turn out to be a lot more all ado about nothing than, than, than a lot of folks feel. But at the same time, I'm glad they're having them. Um, you know, I am probably one of the most skeptical people about aliens out there. A lot of folks are like, well, it isn't alien visitations, but there's surely alien civilizations in the galaxy. I'm not even sure there's no alien civilization or Hubble value at this point, you know. So, And yet, at the same time, I remember when a lot of people in the sciences would not touch the question of aliens with a 10-foot pole because they were afraid they'd be kicked out of academia or shamed. Now they don't have to be, and they shouldn't have been in the first place. It's... It's a completely legitimate area of discussion scientifically, philosophically, and as a matter of national concern. I happen to think the answer is going to be no, 
but I don't think anyone should be hesitant to discuss it at any level of government or academia. So I'm glad for that. But at the same time, I don't expect it to turn out with the result that a lot of people expect it will. We have the little green men locked up in Roswell, for instance. But we'll see, won't we? <laughs> so if you see on the screen there that smiley face with the sunglasses, Donabi said they recently installed a pizza vending machine at his uni. The future is here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it always doesn't catch on in some ways, too. I remember those little packaged sandwiches you get, little sliced in diagonal sandwiches from the vending machines. They're really popular in the 90s. Or I shouldn't say really popular very common in the 90s. They almost completely disappeared because not only did they taste like cardboard, they felt like they should taste like cardboard. Ew. Yeah. Yuck. Andre Jones, thank you for your super chat. How long do you think it will take for humans to speciate in your best guess? Ten minutes. Um, now, <laughs> I think somebody had given a, a value on that. I'm trying to remember what it is right now. I, I saw that not that long back as how long it would take to speciate. It was a, it was a comment on one of all, all episodes even. But I think they said that with like a thousand planets, you should be able to have a speciation event in like 50 years where you start having ones that were not related to each other. That seems incredibly too short to me, but uh, at the same time, you know, and, and then let's, let's add another one on there. These things only ever actually make sense in a technological context because you're not going and settling other planets uh, unless you've got technology all over the place. And then you should ask yourself how much speciation takes place because we'll make fun of like... Um, how easily in Star Trek people have like half Betazoid, half human, or half Vulcan, half human kids. And, um, you know, it is rife for making fun of because it's very absurd in some ways. On the other hand, when you've got enough technology, you can make stuff like that happen. And I hate to say in the Star Trek universe, they could very easily come, you know, play around with DNA or, or just build something composite wise with things that demons share DNA. You know, these guys use something completely different and just make something that was the equivalent of a hybrid because they really wanted to. That's 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 the option on the table there. You can just brute force it. So I think in that context, humans don't ever really speciate because if you had like centaur humans that have been engineered on some planet like seen House of Suns, we'd still be able to find some way to mix them back together with us if we wanted to. And if brute force isn't working... You're not using enough of it, yeah. <laughs> Crab, do you think the room temperature ambient pressure superconductor is real? And if so, what are its effects? Um, peer review and checking it out would be great. I, I think this is the big thing. We are getting closer to that, but it's not really one of those things where it's like, wow, we're going to make this breakthrough where you know we just keep pushing at it. There either is or is not a material that will superconduct at room temperature and pressure. And if, if there is, we'll, we'll find it by just keep pushing at the window a little bit. If not, nothing we do is going to push that. I would say in many ways that we're already at the point where we've got stuff that's good enough. It just hasn't become streamlined enough in terms of, of you know, figure out, like, we keep finding better ones. So why, why go to billions of dollars of effort to get one walking that isn't quite as good as the one that's going to come out in a couple of years? But there'll get to be a point where we say, we have this material, it's expensive, but we can superconduct for you at negative 10 Celsius and uh, and inside a slightly pressurized package. That's great. We can make a wire that's going to do that, and that's what we'll do all new trunk lines in. But we kind of embarrass you to spend a trillion dollars on electric upgrades and uh, you know, change around all your architecture for your electronics. And then someone comes out the next day with, look, I got a warm temperature one. That's, that's kind of the problem that we have with technology is we get some new things and say, why don't we upgrade to doing that? And then people say, well, it's going to take us at least a decade, uh, you know, a huge amount of money to do that. And and based on the current pattern, if we wait five years before we even get this project to roll in, we'll have something better going on. <laughs> so That could be a challenge. Oh, yeah. Um, Matthew K says, do you think that interdimensional travel is more likely than faster than light? Yes. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I think that anything involving FTL in this universe are the way that people tend to mean it, as opposed to something that's traveling away from us faster than light, relies way too much on the idea of negative things being real, um, as opposed to things like negative electric charge being real, which is because it's negative because we say it's negative. It's just the opposite. Right? Um, we have no reason to think they're all negative quantities, and in the absence of these things existing, um, you're not going to get FTL. I've never seen any method for that. Now, the flip side of that is there is nothing stopping you if there is other dimensions or realities congruent to our own or whatever from going to those. We just have no evidence they exist. And uh, kind of like the uh, negative matter, I suppose, except that we have reason to believe the one might exist. 
whereas there should be negative matter floating around our universe. We would expect other universes to be floating around our universe. So if they exist and can actually exchange matter or energy or even just information, there should be a way to do that. And uh, if you can detect them, that means they're exchanging matter or energy or information. So if we can ever detect these other universes, it strongly implies we could actually travel to them in some fashion. The next question is from Philario, and he's talking about the German sci-fi series Perry Roden from the mm -hmm. 60s, yeah. and he said that there had a solar system with three planets in a single orbit at 120 degree increments. Mm -hmm. Would such things even be achievable? Achievable is kind of the key word there because you could do it artificially. That's kind of like the Kempler rosette. Um, I have not read Perry Roden. I've, I've heard it suggested a few times, and it was very when I was in Germany, it was a uh, you know, it's a book series to hear about a little bit more often there, but I never read it. I don't know if it's been translated or not. Um, but uh, assuming that's that I'm getting the right image there, they basically have a circular orbit around a star with three planets evenly spaced on that orbit. Yeah, that one might be pushing it. It helps a lot if you got them at 60 degree increment because that's where your L4 and L5 all is 60 degrees off. Um, but uh, I'd have to run the numbers to see if three would actually be allowed, but six does. Anything anything above that starts working just fine to you just evenly space them until they're a ring. Um, and that's a Kempler rosette. I think uh, that's that's definitely an option you have available, but you only do that if you really, really, really want to have big, gigantic spherical planets that are all the same mass and artificially made and, and put them in circular orbits. Because otherwise, that's a, a lot of perturbation. Although, to be fair, if you can make that happen, you can also restabilize that. That's a big thing to remember things like ring wards or Dyson spheres. And say, well, this thing is inherently unstable. And say, the people who built that in the first place can fix that problem. <laughs> they can brute force it if they don't have something more elegant. But if you can build a planet, you can move a planet. It's 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 similar energy levels. So. And if brute force isn't working. <laughs> you can't. You're just not using enough of it. Thought Criminal says, what is your opinion of Robert Nozick's experience machine thought experiment and how far away do you think the technology to rep replicate any experiences and what are the implications? I think that's like three questions. Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I, I'm, I think I remember what that is, but I'm not sure. So if, if you want to post that back again with the, like the little wiki summary, whatever that is again, to make sure I'm, I'm not going off on some random tangent. I'm recalling it as something where you can transfer experiences like memories, but that could be, mm. I could be a completely wrong I'm going to put a little so smiley so now. you can uh, look at that later mm. as well. Yeah. Um, we have a super chat. Thank you, Dominic. I've been going through your back catalog and re-enjoying old episodes. Which old episode do you think deserves a go-over? P.S. I must plug narration-only versions once more. Heart. <laughs> I love the narration-only ones. The problem is you can't really, like... Posting to SoundCloud, I do a narration-only version, a music-only version, and I can't really do that to YouTube. We did that one time with the Carter Show scale video because I put the music on there way too loud, so I, I turned around and put a new one out. YouTube penalized the heck out of you for splitting videos like that. It would, it would literally murder the channel if I were to start doing a you know, uh, music-only and music-not-only version on YouTube. So if you really want to hear them without the music on, turn the narration-only version on and give yourself about five seconds between my little intro one-liner and the start of the main narration. That's usually about how much I space them out. Uh, and you can just listen to it without the music. Uh, what's my single favorite episode that I feel like should get more watches? Um, kind of that key one. Uh, maybe the original Technological Singularity video. Um, and Black Hole Farming is another one of the big ones. The Terraforming Techniques video from way back was probably the biggest catalog. I've always kind of wanted to do more of a compendium approach to that. And uh, I'd say that's probably the, the key ones. I'd say I always go back and watch those. But there's other ones where I was surprised they didn't do as well as I would have hoped, like the Double Plants and Roche Wards episode from way, way back. But uh, a lot of those, I think we'll be doing Double Plants at some point anyway. But, uh, a lot of those ones, it's, if, you look, if you like the title, give it a watch. You know? Aunt Autumn Sun, thank you for your super chat. Have you seen the anime Planetes? Planets? I I'm guessing it is. Planets? I think it is. Well, that's a good question. How do we pronounce that thing? So people have been recommending that to me for years, and I will say that uh, Chuck Sonenborg from SF Debris, it's a channel on YouTube and also a website, he got around to covering that show uh, like a month or so back, and I watched the reviews of that, and I started watching the actual episodes instead, and I liked enough that it's going to be one of our um, poll options at the end of the month for what space development thing we should cover. And uh, 
it's definitely a very interesting one. For those who are wondering, it's spelled like planets, only with a, an E between the T and the S, and, you know, planets, P-L-A-N-E-T-E-S, and they put up a little thing that says Wanderer, so that's what planets is, and I have no idea how that's supposed to be pronounced. So I think everyone just calls it planetes. That's what I'm going with. If that's not right, I, I have no idea. But it's about people doing space debris clearance in the late 24th century. And uh, it can be silly at times, but it's also kind of spot on, a little bits and pieces. So I, I do recommend that to other people, too. That, that leads into the follow-up question, which was, how realistic do you think that it is? Um, as fiction goes, pretty realistic. Uh, I mean, there's, there's bits and pieces that are off again. And it is obviously designed mostly around telling an entertaining story. But uh, it's got some neat bits. It's definitely, I, I feel like it's definitely got a strong root in hard science. And then obviously it, it meanders off at times, but nowhere to the degree that uh, Doctor Who or Star Wars or us even Star Trek did. So hard enough. <laughs> um, a lot of super chats today. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your contributions to the channel and the show. Horace the Great has a super chat question Have you heard of the Alexia Bodrick? and Gianna Mattire Physical Warp Drive and One-Way Time Machine by Positive Energy? No, but yes. And I, I was I've, I make this recipe pretty often. For some reason these days, everything sounds familiar to me and I can never quite recall it. I, I, just, I think it's like some state of brain absorption of data where it's like, well, things aren't collating well enough. Everything sounds familiar. So if you've heard of this, as the answer for me, it's almost always, that sounds familiar. And it might be, or it might be, Completely random. <laughs> okay, well, there's a follow-up question, and maybe this is one you want to look at later as well. Do you think the government is experimenting on this technology? Without actually, I mean, if DARPA was screwing around with that, that would not surprise me at least bit. They, they like to play with anything hypothetical like that. That's what their job is. Um, and, yeah, at the same time, just because you hear DARPA's messing with something doesn't mean that they actually have much interest in succeeding or successful belief that it will. Uh, but, again, I can't... I'd be curious how they think they could do time travel with positive energy um, in, in terms of backward time travel. It's pretty easy to do with the, if you're using a positive energy supply like mass, regular mass, you could obviously slow time down. But I would be curious how they think they're doing it there. All right. I think I'm going to fit two more questions in here before the break. Mm -hmm. We have a super chat from Dave Harrison. Thank you. Resource refining. You explained the energy, but what about the chemistry? How would you reduce the ore or melt out the silicate inclusions, for example? Well, critically, I'm a physicist, not a chemist, so that tends to be why I focus there. Um, there are a lot of folks who've gone into that in more detail. Blue Origins, uh, I can't remember the specific sub-thing for that was called. It, it, the Blue Origins project that I referenced in there about trying to actually do the solar panels made out of regolith goes into a lot of that there, too. Um, I think the biggest thing is, I always tend to assume, because again, I'm not a chemist, so I tend to focus more on the brute force energy technique on that one, is if you just dump enough energy into it, you're going to find a way to refine the metal out of it and get the oxygen. But obviously, there's a lot of better chemical ways of doing that. But again, the problem is that I I never really much liked chemistry. <laughs> so <laughs> I know my basics. I got through it fairly well. But after that point, I leave the more theoretical aspects of that up to people who actually enjoy the topic. And so I've seen the papers on it. I'd suggest those to you. They're going to give you a much better answer than I could. This is going to be the last question before the break, and before you get your drink and snack, I'd encourage you to pop your question into the chat, and thank you, Maya Skill and the others behind the scenes that are helping us to uh, process those questions and get them up. Clash says, you probably don't remember, but last year on the SFIA Discord, you had a chat with a few of us on farming Mars. You mentioned agriculture aquaculture, sorry, mm -hmm, yeah. aquaculture, and I was wondering how viable that would be at a large scale. I need to spend more time on the Discord side. Something I do want to apologize to everyone who's on Discord audiences. I used to go over there and actually have like live audio chats with people at times too and just exchange things, but the last year, not just the kids, but like the three or four months before that have been so insanely busy that I just, when I'm down in the office, I try to focus on just turning the episodes over. Um, and when I have had time, I try to get to the Reddit forum, which had been previously pretty neglected, or our actual main YouTube group. So uh, I will try to start rotating back in there while I do remember that conversation, but not terribly well. Aquaculture is a logical approach to do on Mars because you can just dig a huge trench or cradle, take an existing cradle, and fill it with water. You do have to put something on top of that so it doesn't evaporate. Yes, you do have to put something on top of it. All the wood freeze on its own in most latitudes, and you have that water underneath. 
And so you could domino over, keep that water fairly warm, and grow fish and plants it pretty well. And so long as you put some kind of lighter on the bottom, which we routinely do with ponds and reservoirs anyway, you don't have to worry about the chemistry on it. They're getting too messed up from percolates. Yeah. So I think that's as good an approach as then you just do hydroponics with the rest of that too. But the cool thing about aquaculture is there's so much thermal mass there that you don't have to worry about the temperature variation over the course of a day too much. Uh, so we're going to go to break. We're going to see you back here in about two, five minutes and go grab a drink and a snack and get more questions. While we're on a break grabbing a drink and a snack, it's a great time to get more questions into our moderators. And I want to take a moment to thank everyone who moderates for us during this live stream or on our social media forums like Discord, Reddit, and Facebook, all of which are linked in our episode if you'd like to join the discussion. It tends to be a thankless job, though I'm glad to say that as social media groups go, the audience for SFIA tends to be a lot more courteous than the norm, and thank you all for that. I found that most shows our size or larger don't tend to have their creator read or apply to any comments. And I understand why, but for me the generally positive and interesting comments from the audience are one of the parts I enjoy the most about the show. I'll refrain from adding that I tend to think writers, actors, and creators who complain about their own audiences on the occasions they deign to interact with them get little sympathy in my book, especially when it's legit criticism about not liking how they've adapted some pre-existing bit of a story or history, and I think they self-inflict some of the wounds by needlessly attacking rather than engaging that audience. But to be fair, there are some real jokes out there and people tend to zoom in on those comments more. It's human nature, along with getting prickly when criticized. I have no specific franchise in mind, incidentally. There have been so many adaptations or sequels of fan favorites in recent years, some pretty good, some pretty horrible, that it's almost its own specialized genre now and it seems to involve a lot of needless fan baiting and criticizing, and it makes me grateful for an audience that mostly doesn't do that and I've never seen the point in making nasty comments at someone who took the time to try my show out and didn't like it. Also, usually when we have an uptick in nastier criticism of SFIA episodes, often on my accent or impediment, it tends to coincide with an uptick in views and new subscribers, so I maybe have a bit of a Pavlovian response to nastier commentary. When we get lots of it, we are usually growing as a show. We have been of late, which brings it to mind, probably from a mix of me putting up some short-form content, bringing in some other bonus content over from Nebula, and doing those image polls to help pick topics. Hopefully a little is from improvement in my speech impediment too. For those curious that's all been on the to-do list for a while but back burner during the foster adoption process Sarah and I have for our kids, who hopefully will be formally adopted by the next livestream so I can stop referring to them as Thing 1, Thing 2, and The Princess whenever referencing them publicly. Also, as welcome as it was to be asked to serve as the President of the National Space Society, that really is a huge honor and I try to give it the time and energy it deserves, it shoved things back a few months too. For our Nebula Watchers, I switched over from doing extended editions to bonus episodes late last year as our team monitoring Nebula Reddit feedback said those were preferred, and since those are entire episodes, albeit usually shorter ones, some of those I'll probably bring over to YouTube as extra episodes after a year or so. Probably not all though, some I think YouTube will just decimate so they can stay there on Nebula, and the extended editions of episodes are too. For anyone wanting to join Nebula, there's a discount link in every episode, this one included, and this month's bonus episode there is Nomadic Minos on the Moon, and as a sneak peek, next month is going to be on Retro Causality, which had come in as the runner-up in two of our image episode polls, so I felt it deserved an episode. Also, for folks looking for summer reading recommendations, I was doing a reread of Robert Heinlein's young adult Scribner series from the 1950s in advance of our episode Have Spacesuit Will Travel, which is the name of the last book of that series, although his better known novel Starship Troopers, written the next year, is sometimes considered the final work of that collection. The better part of a century later, while they show their age sometimes, they're still awesome and great for adults and young adults. They've got good audiobook narrations too. I also just started the novel Alien Neighbors by Nancy Gordon who I got to meet and talk with during the ISDC earlier this year, and I'm only a few chapters in at the moment but it's great thus far and a nice near future look at how a first contact situation might go, or go wrong for that matter. I also want to give a shout out to Robert Zubin's new book The Case for Nukes, which I hadn't even heard was out till he told me about it at the ISDC and right after he ran out of copies to sign. As with the case for space and the case for Mars, Zubin pulls no punches laying out his reasoning and he makes a great case for why we need to see more use of nuclear energy on Earth and in space. 
If you got any other book suggestions for others looking to enjoy their inner bookworm this summer, post those in the chat or the comments below along with your questions. And speaking of those, let's get back to our show and more of your questions. Go. Alright. Welcome back to the second half of our live stream Q&A. Going back to a question about the Nozick Thought Experiment, I was misremembering that one, that's a brain in a jaw concept of whether or not hedonism in terms of um, is the greatest good just being happy for life, that's the thought experiment that covers that. We're not going to dip into that too much right now because I'm only that familiar with that one, it's not the one I was thinking about, but we'll try to get to that next time. So, do we have any more questions? Yeah, we have a few shout outs. Canis Familiaris, thank you for your super chat. Miami's Last Capitalist, also a super chat. No questions, just saying hi Isaac, hi Sarah, and hi Arthur family. <laughs> um, we have a super chat from Michael Peterson. Super chats are indeed a good way to grab attention to your posts, and the mods added either that or have a great question. <laughs> they both work pretty well, yeah. <laughs> um, so along those lines, Solarian8 said, Hello, a somewhat silly question. How do you think games like Dungeons and Dragons will change in the future? Augmenting human intelligence will heavily change how these work. Um, you know, I think the biggest one I've been seeing, and more of a post-COVID thing, we, uh, like I play D&D, it's actually Pathfinder, but D&D with uh, one group that I've been doing for like 20 years now. And we've pretty much had to settle on doing it completely online since then, because so few of us live in the same area. And I would say it changes the experience, but it's you, you get to be able to do a lot more complexity of character in terms of the dynamics because the computer can handle so much the calculations you have to do the pen and paper the whole time, which is hard if you're not like a you know, mathematician. <laughs> so um, it lets a different group of people play with more complexity. But we're going to get to a point with AI where I can you know say, well, I'm going to describe this scene to you guys. And... Instead of just picturing your head, it's going to pop up a little AI prompt. Expect that to be the probably one of the big things the next few years. I'd say is someone like War Twenty is going to say, "Let's add an AI prompt generator in here." So when the DM puts a prompt in, he can just show that picture to people. Um, he or she, anyway. Um, that would be the short term one for that. Beyond that, you know, active experiences like that, I think are still going to be a big seller of games. That's why I see there's so much of the multi, you know, MMOs, but. It's so hard to predict the gaming environments. If I did, I'd publish a game and be a billionaire. <laughs> um, and but yeah, I would say it's definitely still going to have a role, though. It's it's not going to die even if pen and paper itself gets less common. Freedom fiend, thank you for your super chat. You answered one of my questions before about the role of ceramics in the near future. As the technology develops, what materials or components do you think might be replaced with ceramic equivalents in the near future? Windows. Um, it is always possible we might get so good with doing diamond and growing diamond, as I say, growing uh, microwaving diamond in a lab that we might start making windows out of stuff. But I think transparent ceramics is probably the biggest one that we'll probably see in the next, like, from an economic angle. That and I mean, you see with the ceramic knives, a lot of edges because you get that, that very thin cutting surface. Those are the big ones that I can think of off the top of my head, but. It's a huge game. It's like plastics. There's so many places you do with it, or metals in general. It's going to have an increasingly large role, though, in day-to-day uh, -day household items, I'd say. <laughs> but I forget. I, I just was really stuck on this idea of diamond windows and oh. whether or not those might replace like engagement <laughs> rings all or close, best like <laughs> you know how they used to like bring panes of glass back in the pioneer ages and be like would you marry me here's a pane of glass for your window maybe they'll bring them back and would you marry me here's some diamond windows for your house <laughs> so I finally got a jaw dropping question for my wife here and it was the idea of diamond sized windows so <laughs> <laughs> no, no, windows that are made out of diamonds. Diamond, yeah. I mean, that would be sparkly. That would be really cool. It would be cool. So I You might that, need to we be more than about, a billionaire yeah. to afford that. Well, we were talking about the, the, the marine diamonds on Neptune and Uranus. I remember that, that caught your eye, too. So uh, that sounds like an expensive interest. <laughs> At least with our windows. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I love them. I would love to summer. replace our arched windows with diamonds. What do you yeah. think, husband? No. <laughs> <laughs> They are six <laughs> feet across, or five feet across, and six feet high. Mm -hmm. And we have at least. And they're south facing, so we. <laughs> we have at least, I don't know, six or eight of those. The, the person who designed this house loved, loved large windows, and I, in the winter time, it's amazing because it's 
having that sunlight in there is so spirit raising. But in the summertime, with the it's blackout curtains, yeah, because yes. it's, it's it's an air conditioning build that you don't want otherwise. <laughs> Sonabella, if the negative things required for faster than light were real, how do you think the laws of physics will handle the causality issue if you had to bet? Badly. Well, All right. um, something along the lines of the Nokia self con- uh, self-consistency principle, uh, which Hawking also explored something similar to the idea that, uh, well, I think I, I usually phrase it this way. You have any number of realities that can take place from moment A to moment B that will still get you back to there. There are, there are a billion different pathways that have somebody walking into a room with you as planned with the exact same state, right? There's a lot of ways they can get there. Think of like a drop of water falling down. It can land anywhere on the continent. It ends back up in the ocean eventually. And over a lot of period of time, it ends up in back in the same position. Maybe it follows a river. Maybe it runs down a roof. Maybe it runs down one side of the roof or the other. It gets there. But any pathway that doesn't have it getting there doesn't exist and, and will just fade out. Like a, it's basically you know, a, a draft version of a universe that uh, doesn't get published. That's kind of the idea that you have with things like the Nokia self-consistency principle is that only those self-consistent realities can happen. And the other ones will just fade out into quantum, which we have a precedent for. So, Your audience is suggesting I need white gold trim on my diamond windows. Uh-huh. I, I, I like my rose gold, rose yeah. gold <laughs> but maybe I could have rubies inset. <laughs> um, how much would the construction of mega projects like Ring Worlds and the like be stunted by the fact that virtual worlds are likely to be a less expensive option? I'm sorry, you're gonna have to repeat that because my bed said how much would be stunted by you know if making them out of diamond, um, which you might too. By the way, all the ones that want transparent sections, I usually knock, and a lot of people knock the idea of doing big windows and space habitats for sunlight to come through because glass, but if you make them out of diamond, then you, you could. Uh, it was whether or not they'd be able to build them because of VR. I think uh, the, the, the issue, mega projects, did, yeah. did you want me to repeat it? I think I got the idea that was that they wanted uh, to know how much would be stunted by virtual reality. Uh, uh, it would help no, no, design. how much would the construction of mega projects like mm-hmm. Ring Worlds yeah. and the like be stunted by the fact that virtual worlds are likely a less expensive option? Way less expensive. Although, you know, here's the thing, right? Way less expensive on, on what metric? Because you think, well, I've built this incredibly elaborate thing that is so realistic, but it's so realistic it could pass for the real deal. Good enough. Uh, Now I hit the button that says, self-replicating machines, go make that. Because you actually did all the hard work there already. The design was the hard part on that. Now the machines are going to go do that thing. How much effort does it really take to tell a bunch of self-replicating machines go build me a gigantic metal cylinder out of that asteroid? And the answer is, how much does it take to tell a, you know, a seed, go build me a forest? <laughs> so. so we have a super chat from SVS Guru 2000 but we already answered his question, so thank you. Astrovoid, would a ship be p- pushed by a Stellaz... Stellazer. Thank you. Stellazer heat up from all the energy beamed at it. Hmm. I'm sorry, could you say that one again, please? Would a ship be pushed by a stelazer heat up from all of the energy beamed at it? Oh, okay. Would a stelazer being pushed by right, right. So if I'm hitting it with a big beam, right, uh, and that's pushing along and reflecting off it, is it heating up? And the answer is yes, right? Um, but it's being bounced off a mirror. The whole idea is to bounce off a mirror because if it's going in and getting absorbed, you are definitely heating up from that. But you're only getting one momentum bounce. When he bounces off the back, you get twice the momentum, right? Because it's going there and now going backward, so you get double the momentum. So you always want to bounce off of a mirror. And if I'm bouncing off a mirror that's, say, 99.9% reflective, which is not that hard to do, especially if you're calibrating for basically one wavelength, um, then you go ahead and say, well, I'm absorbing a gigawatt of electricity that's bouncing out of the, uh, energy that's bouncing out the back of me. You know, that gigawatt is leaving one thousandth of that behind as heat. So now it's a megawatt. So you have to have enough radios to do that. And you have those radios on that meal surface for the most part, too. Uh, and if you do that correctly, you might actually be able to do that non-omnidirectionally so your waste heat's also giving you a little bit of thrust. But that's trickier. Uh, so the answer being yes, it could heat up your ship. If you wanted to heat up your ship, you can, though. Right? You might decide that you would like to have you know, segments of that, that big reflective meal that are actually absorbing rather than reflecting, both for, uh, you know, power generation, you know, beaming sunlight, absorb it, uh, and uh, to heat the thing up. 
because you might want to heat up the object, like with a comet, to ablate it off. So again, Maya Skill's doing a great job forwarding us the questions in the comments, and he sent me one. It was a super chat with a little meme from Simon Farmer that says, I was there, Hi, the Isaac Jones Pizza <laughs> Oven Idea 2023. <laughs> Simon, another one of our longstanding members of the Facebook community in particular. Vincent Cleaver, thank you for your super chat. It says, clanking replicators seem dangerously useful for creating more habitat in deserts, on the oceans, in the tundra, up in the air, something short of heat pollution death, but replacing natural ecosystems? Atomic bear hugs. I'm not sure what the question on that is, but it did have a question mark. I don't know, but atomic bear hugs, is, uh, is, that, is that his name? Was that a... Oh, no, it says atomic bear hugs. I that, think that is, that is awesome. <laughs> I think, I think he's about. saying <laughs> okay. well, if you're replacing the natural ecosystem, oh, think yes. about how you could idea. have atomic bear hugs instead of like just a regular old bear. I don't know, but it's, I th I f yeah, we had a black bear show up in Baldo Huddy Supply a couple of weeks back, and, and then he visited the jail. And go get a shot. Yeah, himself in anonymously. The sheriff posted a photograph. There's a the bear trying to get in the jail. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> think we'll get a shotgun after that just be on the safe side. Not that that would put the bear down, but it might be able to scare it off if you shot it with some rock salt or something. Um, but uh, i got to protect the bees, protect the hive. <laughs> so the question was whether or not you'd replace things with um, with an ecosystem and, and, and to bring that rabbit trail in. Imagine if you re-engineered your bees to be, uh, instead of just collecting nectar, they also, you know, like you send ants instead to say, I'm going to have you collect a kernel of corn. So they go march out into the field, and half the stuff, they, you know, the cobs and stuff, they take down to their nest to use for themselves, and the other half, they march their corners off and stick them in the silo for you. And you've programmed them to do that. You have to lay the pheromone trail down for them that does that, whatever it is. But that's an example of, of taking, you know, existing ecosystems and turning them into machines. We talked about that with having squirrels be, you know, programmed to pick up garbage in exchange for food pellets to augment their, their food supply, especially on space stations, where you might want to have a lot more squirrels and they would be supported by the local uh, habitat naturally. Um, I don't know that we should be thinking too much of there being that that thick a line between machines organic and machines that we build. So I just um, seen mm -hmm. only the upcoming um, I've only seen the upcoming videos on my screen, and I didn't know if we were actually showing up in the chat. So if you want to check on that while I ask you the next question. Um, it's actually from Godizi. What industries or businesses do you think will be big in the next 10 to 30 years? Food delivery. Oh, I think we hit that one earlier. It looks like it's going okay. Um, food delivery would be a big one. Um, automated calls, that is going to be an increasingly big one. Oh, let's see. For ground-based stuff. Oh, let's go with those two for now, because I, I don't know if I can think of too many off the top of my head. Uh, making diamond windows. <laughs> or transparent ones. Oh, my. But, I mean, making better, stronger windows. And solar and batteries, those are both going to be big ones, too. Hopefully nuclear, too, but I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> so. What is your favorite means of faster-than-light travel in fiction? My favorite means... Well, my favorite means is is kind of a toss-up between the infinite probability drive from Douglas Adams and uh, the one that Slotty Balfour has in the third book, the uh, Beechdramatics-driven one, which uh, requires the, the the breakdown of mathematics that occurs inside restaurants for calculating the bill and takes those those paradoxes and things that allows you to run a spaceship that can go faster than light while inside a restaurant by using Beechdramatics. Um those would be my two favorite ones. As to terms of like realism for fast and light travel, there's so many of them. Um, that that I would say probably Asimov's hyperspace generator from from Foundation because, and this is why it's my favorite. He just proclaims it works. It goes from point A to point B. There's no discussion of how it works. Just it does. <laughs> and I like that because it says, "I know this is impossible, but we need it for the story." Bam. That's it. No discussion beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your super chat, Christian Carello. Could volcanic planets such as the recently discovered LP791-18D be more likely to retain a habitable atmosphere even while orbiting a red dwarf? Oh, um, if you're outgassing, uh, you can keep that uh, supply of atmosphere going while something strips it off. And the question is, how much do you have to outgas? Uh, and 
this is a hard one for us to answer because we don't really have, like, Mars wasn't out gassy enough. We know that. Um, maybe Earth was because we don't really know if the, you know, the commentary bombardment was correct or not. That's our kind of best guess hypothesis. Uh, Io outgasses pretty heavily, but its air gravity is way too low to stick around and it actually flies off into space. Same for Pluto. Pluto outgasses and stuff actually follows onto the planes of Mordor. Uh, on, on, on Sharon, its moon. And uh, yes, everything on Mordor, on Sharon is the end of Lord of the Rings, um, which uh, we actually went and saw the, the, the concept for that last night. So if you didn't know, uh, if, if you're in the Cleveland area, we were having the Cleveland Orchestra is doing the Lord of the Rings. Um, they play the movie in the background while they live play the songs very loudly. Uh, just so you can still hear the audio. We didn't did that last night. It was actually... Uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It made me forget what the rest of the question was, though. <laughs> I think you got it. All right, let's see The next super chat is from Bandersong. The new tech that improves productivity tends to just create time to produce more resulting and no true gain to leisure. What will AI free us up to do? Uh, more of what we actually would prefer to do personally, I'd say. Uh, I, I, I would dispute the idea that we don't gain leisure time. It's more that... You know, so people tend to work to whatever degree they are comfortable with because there's always more stuff to get done. Um, I literally phrase everything in my life as work because that's what my brain is. And it's because I have the word work in my head as, um, you know, problem solving or people productive in some way. That's just what it is to me. And so that's, that's to me, working is being efficient with time. And I can do that with, like, leisure time too. Um, I'm going to do this video game today because this video game, and I don't get to play them as much as I want, is good research for an episode. It helps me understand the, the, you know, the space colonization of Solaris better. Um, that's kind of a perspective attitude. The idea that we don't get more leisure time is, I'm not sure that's really correct. The idea that our ancestors worked from dusk to dawn also is kind of a misnomer because they, they sat around talking to each other the whole time they were doing that. You're like, it's late night, I'm spinning a wheel, you're chatting with people, you might be playing games. They did have these things. So I, I feel like there's kind of a false dichotomy in that question. Now, and that's kind of the follow-up, is the idea that if you have more and more automation, you eventually end up having no work to do. We're not there yet, and we're not going to be there anytime terribly soon. But that could happen one day. I'm not sure that's a desirable goal, uh, and the idea that we want to have nothing but leisure time has never really struck me as, a, as an admirable goal either. But I don't think that's going to come up because I don't think the opposite of walk is leisure time. I feel like, there's, there's, again, there's a false dichotomy in that. Not provided. So, uh, thank you for your super chat. says, can you discuss the pan-cosmoria pan hypothesis and maybe do an episode on it? Or if you aren't familiar, would you look it up? Uh, we're going to have to look that one up. I know panspermia. Uh, I don't know pan-cosmoria. Is that maybe like a black hole farming of universes concept? <laughs> There's no further details, so <laughs> you'll say yes, you can look that one up. We'll look that one up. Cosmic Treason says, would negative mass have negative extension in space? Would negative mass have negative what? Extension in space. Uh, does it push space out from it the way that uh, mass contracts? Yes. The answer is yes. You. That's how that warp drive works. You're expanding space um, behind it and contracting in front. Um, so, yes. All right, we have a personal question from Marcus Postma. Is Isaac a member of any veterans organization such as the American Legion or VFW? Yeah, I'm a lifetime member of the VFW post fought the Geneva, Ohio post. I haven't been there in a few years because we moved to Plymouth, but um, I'm a lifetime member. I joined actually as soon as I got back in the country from my last post overseas to Iraq. Um, that's the only veteran organization I'm part of, though I'm also an ORP veteran rep for the area too, so... Thank you for your super chat. I have two questions. What happened to Hades 9? And also, would it be possible to build a birch planet around a Quasar? Quasar. Sorry. Um, off gun. I, to... <laughs> but, um, I actually just talked to Nick Talmont the other day about that. We hadn't talked to each other in a couple of years. We just bumped into each other on LinkedIn. Um, it, it, I think that one is prematurely dead at this point. He's moved on to other projects, so it's a lot of his team came with him to go to other software projects. It is the, the Ghana game that, as I think as you said, the one that kind of got away. A lot of games, they, they make a lot of progress, then kind of hit that wall. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to get resurrected. But it was it was a lot of fun to work on. 
Uh, I've worked on a few other video games here and there in a conceptual role, and I, I never had as much fun as I did with that one. So maybe, uh, maybe another time. But I love that. It was a great plot that we had building for that. Um, that was the other question. Was the about quasars? Um, would it be possible to build a birch planet around a quasar? Yes, and in fact, one of the ways that you you power that birch planet is basically by feeding mass into it um, to to keep your electric production going on. Um, and you have to be very careful feeding that mass in as directly as possible so you're not doing too much power production because again, a quasar was very, very powerful. Um, and uh, that was actually kind of how the, the quasar cannon uh, short episode came up was uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Larry, he had, uh, he had suggested, he had asked kind of uh, what would happen if a planet fell into one of these. And just the way it got phased when it made it back to me because he asked uh, my wife who said to me, uh, was well, couldn't you do that as like a weapon? Like, like you, know, you load a bullet of a planet size into a giant black hole and fire a beam out the front of it. And I thought that's 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 a quasar cannon, or doing the planet's version as opposed to a stream. The quasar cannon, in my mind, is where you throw a stream of mass into it constantly for basically a big beam. And the Arbhoff gun, as we'll call it, is where you load a planet into the chamber and fire that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my. We have two follow-up questions from Jamaica. I'm pretty sure it's the most destructive weapon ever conceived. <laughs> Under node science. Furthermore, would there be a limit to the size of a black hole for a birch planet? <laughs> and such as a black hole the size of a billion solar masses or 100 billion? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the limitation I put on that is about a trillion solar masses. I'd have to recheck the exact number that's right around that zone. When you're talking to roughly the mass of the galaxy or above, it, and, and this is ignoring frame dragging, which limits you just a little bit, like I think it's about three quarters of the radius. But uh, if you load it all in there, you get to a point where the event horizon has a surface gravity that's that's one gravity. And once you get to that point, any more planet you build bigger than that has lower gravity than that. So you either have to be inside the event horizon, which is probably still a bad idea, or you need to have lower gravity to build a bush planet beyond that. And you could check out the exact number, like the, the total Zeon black hole calculator, but it's about a trillion solar masses in that region is where you hit that maximum. You could go bigger, but uh, then you can't have surface gravity of 1G. You can't have Earth-like gravity. You have to go for, like, motion gravity. And you could have progressive layers. You could build another layer above that lower gravity, but that bottom layer uh, cannot be above 1G once you get about around a trillion or a trillion and a half, whatever it was. Cosmic Treason says, in your opinion, will we have one million inhabitants on Mars before or after we have it in the in the belt? Um, I think you'd have them in the belt beforehand. And the question then becomes, what's an inhabitant? Because technically nobody inhabits Antarctica, but there's a couple thousand people there. So, but I'd say that you're probably going to get that in the asteroid belt. Well, well, let me phrase that. I think you're going to get that on asteroids. We, we kind of have to be careful because a lot of times we're talking about how awesome asteroids are. We assume the belt, but in reality, you have the Trojans of Jupiter, and more importantly, you got all those near-Earth asteroids, and there are like twenty or 30,000 of them. And those are the ones you're going to settle for, is those. Possibly something like Ceres or Vesta. So the near-Earth asteroids are probably a place that's going to force get that big space population. Freedom Fiend says, thank you for your super chat. I find it rather bother bothersome that AI seems to be displacing art before menial labor. Mm -hmm. That said, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so the first job that computers killed was the job title of computer. The Harvard computers that helped out on a lot of the space projects are, are, are an interesting area of history. Uh, they're, they're a great group of women who just did so much math to help progress the area. But we replaced computers with uh, computers. And if you look at some of the old Asimov works, who actually refer to people by the title of computer, you know, computer Twizzler uh, from End of Eternity. But people think of robots as replacing, you know, uh, blue collar jobs. And they certainly have in many cases, but we always have so much more manufacturing to do that we can replace that. Uh, it's the white collar jobs that tend to die from that. And the creative class jobs will too, in a lot of cases. Somebody can write a script pretty quickly these days. I think the scripts that AI turn out right now are garbage, but. Uh, a lot of scripts that get put out by writers <laughs> are garbage, too. Moving on, <laughs> Macrodose with the Super Chat says, Will you be playing Starfield, and should we expect what we find out there to actually be out there? Um, I don't, uh, maybe, and no. I expect the universe to still turn out to be a lot weirder than we expect. It's either going to be incredibly mundane, or it's going to be something really weird. Like, you get out there, like, 
wow, I, I, we bumped into a television screen. <laughs> what is this? Wow, the universe is not the least bit like we thought it was. Um, you know, the universe at the moment appears to be very mundane and empty, uh, but we should never rule out the possibility that uh, you don't have to get off on like simulation hypothesis that we are really just fundamentally wrong about how things work. I would say always leave that back door for your sanity at least in your head so that if the war does turn out to be really weird, you don't have your head explode. So. <laughs> and the last question for today is... <laughs> How are you in general? So I think people would like to know, is there anything else in gen general sense that you would like to share with your audience for uh, the... Hmm. That's, that's, wow, that's a tricky question. I'm doing good. I, I'm enjoying my role as the president of the National Space Society. I had a great conversation with uh, an Anala Tamal um, from the Multiplanetary Society the other day. That was a great conversation. I've gained to talk to all sorts of wonderful new people. I've had an occasion to chat with them in recent times, and I'm loving being a father of three kids, and I'm particularly loving being a husband of a wonderful wife, which is really awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, life is good. I, I enjoy it. I need to finish my greenhouse. That's been like the back project since the wind blew it down. <laughs> That's like the big delay there. Other than that, life's going great. <laughs> and on that wonderful note, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.